Coming up, Lav and I welcome back the Bass Brothers and a whole lot of redemption at TPC Scottsdale. Welcome to the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. Xander Shoffley finished second at the Waste Management Phoenix Open, continuing his great stretch of play on the West Coast Swing. Shoffley uses an epic speed driver and averaged 321.9 yards off the tee this past week. That's a career high in any event and the second longest in the field. Xander, the fourth-ranked player in the world, put the epic driver in play at the Century Tournament of Champions and has finished in the top five in every event since. Shoffley also uses prototype Apex Irons and a Chrome Soft X golf ball. Learn more about all of his clubs at callawaygolf.com slash Xander. Hello, Lav. How was the brisket? Uh, it was not brisket. That was a pork butt. Oh, wow. uh, but thank you for asking. And I, I know... I know our fans uh, and listeners of this podcast are curious, but the gateway, the gateway drum works terrific. That thing was rolling smoke, Rex, from 9 a.m. to about 6.30. Made a pork butt in half the time. Made some delicious garlic parmesan wings. Uh, I couldn't be happier with the gateway. How are those, quote-unquote, ribs that you were trying to make? You didn't like them. You, you weren't impressed. They, they looked very crispy. Uh, no, they were good. And then I also did wings. I grilled wings. And then I, I have found the secret is uh, you kind of flash fry them. You know, you grill them up to a certain temperature and then you flash fry them for just smoke like a fried. You smoke a fry your. Yes, your wings. that's what that I did. That is a good. very good technique. I feel like you're getting paid by Gateway. Is, is that something I don't want to ask about? Is that a slope that I, I don't want to go down? I, I, I wish I were because then I wouldn't be blowing so much money on, on charcoal and various ex, various accessories. <laughs> All right, get to the golf. It, it was a very entertaining Sunday for a lot of different reasons. Super Bowl Sunday, we both turned in, but the Waste Management Phoenix Open. Uh, Brooks Kepka, and there's a lot to touch on here. He comes from five strokes back. Eagles the 17th hole after chipping in. I mean, there was this was a genuine exciting tournament an exciting finish which is really what we were looking for in this particular case but in brooks's case and and i find this fascinating because we made a huge deal that he was coming off of three consecutive missed cuts which he had never done before in his career although i find that a little dubious because one was last fall and then he, he missed his first cuts to start this year so i'm not quite sure if that math adds up but afterwards and, and here's the part that really got me he talked about being in such a dark place didn't know if he was ever going to get back were you surprised that this brought that kind of honesty out of someone who, let's face it, he's not very open when it comes to these types of things. I was actually very surprised. And and Brooks actually mentioned that the low point came last year at the Memorial Tournament. And I remember distinctly, I was the only reporter who wanted to talk to him after the third round uh, at Mirfield Village. And I asked him, I said, you, you know, what's going on physically? It looked like you were laboring a little bit out of the, the bunker. And he kind of let on that, you know, he'd, he'd had an MRI earlier that week. And the doctor said that there's basically no change in his knee um, and that this was kind of going to be his new normal and that he just basically had to tough it out. And it was at that point that Brooks realized that, that he was in some trouble here, you know, that, that, that he wasn't playing the quality of golf he wanted uh, even little things like squatting down in a bunker to take his stance or, or bending down to put the quarter behind the ball was causing him an excruciating amount of pain. And for the doctor to tell him that there's no change in his knee and there's really not a whole lot they can do at that point, um, that was, it was really demoralizing to hear. And so we all know Brooks took two months off this fall. He, he missed the U S open, uh, missed the, the rest of the FedEx cup playoffs that he probably wasn't going to advance very far in any way. Um, but he has shown some, some signs of improvement. And I think that's a testament to the procedure that he had, the, the stem cell, uh, treatment on his knee. Uh, he got a cortisone shot in his hip. 
but for a player who who holds his injuries close to the vest and he 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 hinted at kind of how much discomfort he was in for much of 2020 uh but never really went into details um i think this was a, a satisfying victory for him in a lot of senses but but mostly because he he's he's overcome a lot and it took a lot of hard work uh and training and dedication just to be able to play winning golf again on the PGA Tour. I think that was the most satisfying part for him. And here's the part that I'm fascinated about. I, I don't know if most fans feel this way, but let's face it. Brooks can be a hard person to love sometimes when he does the macho Brooks brothers thing that, you know, the only tournaments I care about are majors when he sort of dismisses the rest of the tour. When he talks about when I'm on top of my game, no one can beat me. I, I understand the swagger. We all love the swagger, but look, it can grade on people. And I think it, it's graded on even some players. That being said, for him to give this peek sort of behind the curtain of how dark things actually got about how far down he fell about spending all that time in San Diego with his trainer, just trying to work through it day by day, not knowing if he was ever going to come out the other side. It makes him such a more compelling figure in my mind. And I know that's ridiculous. I know that's, you know, you just loving the story and not the player, but I do appreciate now when he has gone through all of these things and it's not as though he came up with a silver spoon in his mouth. We all know the story of how he got to the tour and we can all appreciate it. This in my mind though, is just fascinating. Yeah. I, I certainly agree with you that he's not the, the cuddliest uh, PJ tour player or the easiest to root for. And, and I saw a lot of chatter once again on social media, which it seems like every time they, that Brooks wins, there's the inevitable talk that, Oh, I wish it was someone else because how can you, root for a guy who doesn't even seem like he's interested in the competition. Well, I, I'm just not sure that that's necessarily a case. And I think there's, there's room for everyone on the PJ tour. There's a, a player like Jordan who obviously has the redemption angle and you have a player like James Hahn who has a very compelling backstory. And you have a player like Xander Shoffley who is immensely talented, but trying to, to knock down the door and you have Brooks who, yeah, he, he, he might not be as interested in the weekly routine of the PJ tour schedule, but he's also solely motivated by victories and trophies and recognition. And I think there's also, I think in some way that's, that's admirable. He's so minimalistic and his focus is, is so single-minded that it's, that it's almost refreshing. Like he's not interested in the money. He's not interested in the top tens. He wants glory and he wants trophies. And I think that might not be the most compelling narrative to, to golf fans, um, but, but I'm glad he's back in the mix because I think golf kind of needs that, that golf swagger and he's not necessarily a villain, but he's, he's not the, he's not the hero we all want either. No, no, we spent last Monday talking about Patrick Reed, who in a lot of people's minds is a villain. And we can probably say to some level, the same thing about Bryson DeChambeau. I would not put Brooks in that category and I can appreciate his dedication to his craft, his desire to want to be better than everyone else on a day-by-day basis. I, I can appreciate this. I just think this humanizes him to the point that it's going to end up being better for him in the long term. Because I think people who want to understand this story and see how he went through this are going to be fascinated just like we are by this story. All right, you mentioned Jordan, and I could just imagine yesterday afternoon as I'm watching the final, there it is, the smile that crept across your face as your boy Jordan made a run to get back into some sort of relevance on the PGA tour. This came out of nowhere. That Saturday round was unbelievably good. And it came at a time when I absolutely did not expect it. Like, look, you, you haven't stopped smiling since, have you? That's, that was the beauty of that speed round of 61 is that it was so unexpected. 
I mean, there was there were scant signs that he was anywhere close to being ready to win. You look at his statistics, ball striking wise, he he was one of the worst players on the PGA Tour. He just missed the cut at Torrey Pines the week previous. He didn't have a top ten, I think, in eight months. He was he was on the verge of dropping outside the top one hundred in the world, which is unthinkable for the former uh, Golden Child. But if you watch that Saturday round, I know you were probably busy with your boys and, and didn't get to watch the entire thing. But it was it was a vintage Spieth performance. He was spraying drives everywhere. He was hitting shots from the desert. He was he was using his imagination. It's what we've been screaming about for three years that he wasn't playing golf swing. He was just playing golf, and he was creating shots, and he was shaping shots, and he was stuffing irons close to the pin. He was rolling in those mid-range putts it, it felt a lot like the comparisons in 2016-17 we said that Jordan Spieth is the Steph Curry of golf in the sense that you put him anywhere on the green and he likes his chances of making it very much the way that Steph will cross the half court line and heave one up and he thinks he's going to drain it too and so it was it was spectacular I don't think it was all all that surprising that he that he struggled on on Sunday and eventually slid into a tie for fourth. This was a player who still found the fewest fairways of anyone in the field. Uh, his putter went cold for, for much of the final round, but I'm not sure what your takeaway is, but, but there was, this was a, a much needed sign for Spieth that he's on the right track with some of the swing changes that he's been making. I'm not going to be the dark cloud. I'm not going to be Ryan Ladner's dark cloud when it comes to Jordan Spieth, because I know how much joy that brought you. I mean, everything, I mean, between, being able to hang out with your gateway grill all day to be able to watch your boy, Jordan Spieth try to become something uh, shadow of the man that he used to. I mean, look, it must've been, I mean, you were yelling at your wife and child to leave me alone. I was, I, it was, how, how could you not get wrapped up? That's for, for basically just a third round of a, of a whole home regular season tournament. That's as good as it gets. That is absolutely as good as it gets. And I agree with you entirely. There, there was a bit of smoke and mirrors in there during that Saturday round. You're absolutely right. I don't know that you can say that there hasn't always been a bit of smoke and mirrors. That, that's what makes Jordan Spieth He was so the compelling. best iron player on the PGA Tour in 2017. Sure. But as you mentioned, spraying it all over the lot with the driver, and you just knew he was going to get it done somehow. And how many shots? Did, every time I tuned in, it seems like he was hitting a shot from the desert. So I don't know if that has particularly changed. However, there was joy. His smile was back on the face. He didn't seem to be yelling at Greller as much as he has over the last two years. So there is something to be said for that. And you look at the game, and I just kind of was watching Twitter as I was watching on Saturday. I, I think golf actually needs Jordan Spieth, and I don't know that I ever felt that way before. I mean, I've always argued that golf needed Phil Mickelson because Phil brought the best out of Tiger, and you could go down the line about a Dustin Johnson, you need a dominant player, or Roy McIlroy, whatever the case may be. I've never felt like golf needed Jordan Spieth. Watching Twitter? I think I'm going to have to change my mind because people loved what was happening. I I still maintain, and I I told my wife this actually on the couch on Saturday. I said Jordan Spieth is the most exciting player in golf since Tiger, and the reason why I say that is he's he's not the longest hitter. He's not the best iron player. Uh, at times, he can certainly be the best putter, but I don't think consistently. I think when you put him three or four feet, it's still a little bit wishy washy. But it feels like every time that he stands over the ball, you don't know what's going to happen. It always seems like he's he's teetering or he's on, he's on the brink of, of either disaster or just some kind of heroics. And I think that's, that's the appeal of, of Jordan. He, he embodies kind of the everyman appeal, but he just takes it to the absolute extreme. And he's, he's always been 
just an absolute gamer that gets the most out of his skill set. And so I, I think the question, it was certainly being asked on Saturday, and I, I think it's worth asking again on Monday, two days after the 61, is, is he back? And, and I think the answer, at least for me, is is not quite. Um, as you mentioned, his his driving still puts him in way too many trouble spots. And I think it was it was terrific to see him escape from the desert using a lot of imagination and, and shot making. But if you go to a traditional PJ Tour setup with thicker rough, he 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 can't quite manage that. He's he's going to be behind trees, he's going to be hacking out, he's not going to be able to control it as well as he did from the desert floor. That said, I think there were plenty of signs of optimism for, for three rounds, at least his mid range putting was back. He led the field in iron play, which was once, as I mentioned, the hallmark of his career when he was playing his best in 2017, but has really fallen off the map over the last year or two. And I think it's also important Rex, that this was the first time that Jordan had held a, a share of the third round lead since the 2018 open. It's been a long time since he's put his swing in his game under the crucible of final round pressure. And I thought it wasn't a complete disaster, on Sunday, I know he didn't play the way that he wanted to, but he he knew that the final round of the Waste Management Phoenix Open was a building block, and I think that he can build on that at a place now at, at Pebble Beach that he's traditionally fared pretty well. No, I don't think he's back, and he, like he still clearly has a lot of work to do, as evidenced by his round on Sunday when he starts out with a couple bogeys and really played his way out of the tournament before he even made the turn. So no, I think he still has a lot to do. But if anybody in the game needed a win, even even a metaphorical win like this one. It was Jordan Speed. I, I think if you give him the slightest glimmer of hope that he's going to find a way to continue down that path, and I do think he's going to do that. My bigger question, however, is how many times sitting on your couch on a random Sunday will you just scream some nonsense at your wife like, I think Jordan Speed is back? I, I didn't say that I think he's back. I I said this Whatever. was a much this was a much needed step in the right direction. You gotta remember, Rex, and Speed himself admitted this because one of the reasons why I think he is so good for golf is that he he does seem like he has a bit of a fragile psyche and he probably lets us into his head a little bit too much in post-round interviews. But he said after the final round that a week and a half ago, before he left for Phoenix, he thought about dropping out of this tournament because he didn't think his game was anywhere near where it needed to be. And he thought that he should show up at Pebble instead because that course fit his, better, fit his eye better than TBC Scottsdale. And so for him to say, it's far from where I want it to be in terms of where he wants his swing to feel, but, quote, boy, I'm glad I came. That's all I wanted to see from, from Jordan Speed. That Saturday 61, it felt different than some of the other round, the good rounds that he's put together over the past three and a half years. It just felt right, since different. You're not, since you're not going to answer that question, what will your wife do when you scream these random golf thoughts from the couch and she's in the kitchen, I'm guessing, or she's in the office yelling at her coworkers like she normally is? I mean, she was just chasing the. She was chasing our two-year-old around. So she, I don't think she. Had, I don't think she had time for my little minutia or my my Jordan Spieth uh, fandom to to shine through. Keep your ramblings to themselves. I did. I also wanted to ask you, and, and I, I was really curious what it was going to look like on TV. This is the first event, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, that had any number of fans back. I believe it was a, about five thousand a day. They didn't give an exact figure, and I was just curious what it was going to look like. Was I going to turn in, tune in? and just completely be horrified where they're going to be a hundred people crowded around a tee box, not wearing a mask way too close. And I never saw that. And I'm sure tournament officials and the tour did a very good job of making sure everyone 
state spaced out. Everyone kept their mask on, even though I saw a handful of people who didn't. I understand that that's sort of the society we live in. By comparison, I will tell you this. I was very, very concerned, sort of the optics of what golf would look like as it sort of took this first step back to welcoming back fans. Not nearly as disturbed as I was on Sunday night watching the Super Bowl. That was super weird. And I believe it was 25,000 people in a large stadium, but still a confined stadium. And it just hammered home to me what the tour and all of us have been saying all along, that golf is probably the only one that's going to allow fans back anytime soon. Those, those cardboard cutouts at, at Raymond James Stadium threw me for a loop because when I first turned on the Super Bowl, so I, I, flipped, I flipped late from the Phoenix Open, obviously, onto the Super Bowl, and I saw all what, what appeared to be just a, a standing blocking of 70,000. Yeah. Oh, my God, what the hell is going on here? And, and sure enough, <laughs> they, they zoomed in. It, they were scattered. The cardboard cutouts were scattered all over the place. Uh, but to be honest, watching it, it felt – it felt normal. I think it was a it was a shame that they didn't have the packed house that they usually have at the Phoenix Open because that Saturday 61 by Spieth, the place would have been just absolutely raucous. But I I do think it is interesting, and I, I must point out that the mass compliance by the crowd that is typically the rowdiest on the PGA Tour was outstanding. Very few fans I saw with their mask below their chin, even when they were uh, not not drinking. I thought. Uh, they should really be commended for that. But I do think Brooks Kepka had a point. And you look at, at the way Brooks has played since the, since the restart last summer, he's either played well in a big event or he's played well in which there were fans. He played well in Memphis. That's a WGC event. He played well in Houston, which had 2,000 fans, right. which at the time was the most since the shutdown. Played well at the Masters, obviously a major. And, of course, now he plays well at the Phoenix Open, which had 5,000 fans, which was the most since the shutdown. I think Brooks is a lot of – is, is like a lot of star players and that they've had trouble getting up. They they felt flat. Roy McIlroy's talked about that forever. That he's had trouble focusing just because it didn't feel, it just felt like a, a practice round. And, and, but Brooks has been the, I, I think provided the most voice to this, that he just couldn't do it. If there's not fans, he just can't do it without having either history altering stakes or someone to just, to just push him along. He says deep down, I'm, I'm kind of a show off. I like, I like showing off. And so I think, you know, you're going to have Pebble here with no fans. You're going to have Riviera here with no fans. And then we're turning to Florida, and they're, they're going to open up the gates a little bit. And I think it's, we're finally going to start to feel uh, a sense of normality once again on the PGA Tour where you, where you have cheers, and it, and it doesn't feel like it's, it's wholly unsafe to be holding a golf tournament with a couple thousand fans on property. And to be clear, they're going to have Pebble and Riviera, which is uh, the Genesis Invitational, not only without fans, family members aren't even going to be allowed at that one. The tour had to, to lock down some of their policies and procedures because of what's going on in Monterey County and Los Angeles County. By contrast, the week after Los Angeles, we go to Florida and Free for all. it seems like all bets. Yeah, all bets are going to be off. Then we can have the conversation about fans wearing masks the way they're supposed to. No, and here's another one. We talked about Brooks talking about the dark places that he went to over the stretch this year, year and a half, whatever it's been. And he's not the first person. I believe Rory was probably the first person who talked about, it's hard for me to get motivated without the fans on property. It's hard for me to stay focused. Paul Casey has told me the same thing. I've heard it from numerous players. To a certain degree, I was surprised to hear, again, another thing I was surprised to hear from Brooks, because I never got the impression that he, even Tiger in his prime, when he was so good at being stoic Tiger and not showing any emotion until the last putt dropped and then you got the fist pump as a payoff even tiger you could tell enjoyed being around the fans you could tell was egged on by them that he took some amount of energy from them i could never tell that from brooks 
and even the, the majors he's won, certainly the Ryder Cups he's played in. I've never felt like he was a guy that fed on that energy until he talked about it on Sunday. I think deep down, every great player is a show off. I, I think they, they want to stand there and say, look, look what I can do with this golf ball. Like, look at me. I'm going to, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to make birdies and you're going to, you're going to cheer me on at the end. I think deep down every great player like is like that. And I think Brooks just kind of talked about it more than, than maybe a, a Rory or, or a tiger or someone who perhaps is more humble, <laughs> perhaps is they're, they're more humble than, than Brooks is. And they're all showmen. You're absolutely right. I mean, they want to show off. They want to be in the weird position so they can show you how special they are and how talented they are. I totally get it. Again, I just was kind of thrown by the fact that he put the injury in sort of the same bin as playing without fans. I would not have thought you to put those two things side by side. And I, I hate to look back for this last topic, but it, it was something that you and I uh, had to spend some time sort of thinking about last week. And it was the RNA and the USGA's decision to take a hard look at equipment standards really and this is about distance rory probably spoke up for at least most pga tour players and i can only assume equipment manufacturers when he said that this isn't a problem with golf this is a pga tour problem this is a 0.1 percent problem whatever number you want to assign to it i don't know if i completely agree with that however i will say this and i, I wrote this on friday because I, I i was fascinated by it. in the same essentially news cycle coming out of Sunday when we had everything that happened with Patrick Reed and a drop and a ball that was embedded, that wasn't embedded, that people thought was embedded, that wasn't embedded. You can keep going down that. It showed the nerdy rules of the side of golf. The very next day you have golfers and equipment manufacturers and the rule makers suddenly arguing about the ball goes too far. You and I play a lot of golf together. Neither one of us have ever walked off a golf course and said, I hit the ball way too far today. I just think it was a weird look for golf this week. As we, as we sort of wrap our minds around in in the age of COVID-19, golf was like the one refuge. And as an industry, we're trying to figure out how to capitalize on that and keep the people who came to the game during quarantine, during lockdown, in the game. And yet here we are in the same news cycle, and we're doing two things. We're showing how weird golf can be with the rules, and it might be a drop, it might be embedded, it might not be embedded, number one. Number two, everybody hits the ball too far, we're going to do something about it. I, I just thought it wasn't a great look for golf. I would agree with that. I'm not sure that they – at the USJ and the RNA, what did you want them to delay their announcement for a couple of weeks and to, to let the Patrick Reed news pass? No, I think it was just, just kind of coincidental. No, 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 just timing. I mean, I, I understand that it, it, they didn't plan it this way. It, I just think it was sort of this unfortunate crashing of waves at the same time. Yeah, look, and look, I still, so we've had a week to digest the news. I still don't know what they're talking about with the driver <laughs> and ball specifications that, with these proposed changes. I think one of the proposed changes is, is quite obvious, and you can call it the Bryson DeChambeau rule, where they're trying to, to limit the maximum length of the driver from 48 inches to 46 inches, except, surprise, surprise, Bryson said he's not going to put the 48-inch driver into play this year. It's too unpredictable, and he thinks that the 45-and-a-half-inch model that he does use uh, is is obviously working for him, and he can hit 350 and have a significant advantage over the field just fine. And so that's a rule that I think probably is just trying to keep the elite-level competition from turning into the world long drive circuit. What I think is more interesting is these um, – or I think they're calling them areas of interest – uh, quote unquote, which where they're going to look into golf balls and less springy drivers and club. You realize this all. isn't a visual medium. You didn't have to throw the quotes up when you did that, but go on. That's, that's fine. I wanted to, I wanted to reinforce that point just for you uh, who's, sure. who's watching at home. So here, here is the question, Rex. 
that I do have for you because I have not heard this question answered. And so it looks like the USGA and the RNA are trying to get through some sort of bifurcation by calling it a model local rule, right? Like the PGA Tour, uh, Augusta National, USGA, RNA, they can adopt these local rules for bifurcation. And so those those uh, events and those competitions are are playing by a different set of rules. However, can't the PGA Tour just say they don't want to adopt this local rule? I mean, what, oh, incentive, sure. what incentive does the PGA Tour have to have their players hit it 20 yards shorter? The PGA Tour is in the entertainment business, and they have gone to great lengths, no pun intended, to showcase how far these guys are hitting the golf ball, whether it's Bryson to Matt Wall to Cameron. Yeah. It's, it's good for business. So why would they possibly say, yep, we're going to use this local rule for our competition so the guys are hitting it shorter? I understand that if Augusta, Augusta National comes in and says you got to uh, use different drivers and different golf balls for the Masters, or if the USGA says the same thing for the U.S. Open, or the RNA says the same thing for the Open Championship, yeah, the PJ Tour probably has to follow suit. And so that from a week-to-week basis, there is some uh, uniformity in the clubs that are being used. I think that's the only way that this is going to work. Because wouldn't the PJ Tour just say, nah, we're good. We're going to go no, ahead and just bomb, bombs away here. And, and look, Tim Fincham, the commissioner before Jay Monahan said it, and Jay Monahan has said it since. They're, they're in the business of watching guys hit a long way and entertaining people. And that has nothing to do with suddenly dialing back the golfers, golf ball. So suddenly they're only hitting at 250 yards. No one's going to be entertained by that, even if everyone's dialed back by 100 yards, whatever the case may be. And, and this is where, like, I guess we should try to get a Jaime Diaz on or one of the traditionalists who look at this through a vastly different lens. Because my thought was, and Webb Simpson has said this all along, he said it this week, that it's more less about an equipment problem and more of a design problem. And certainly we'll be at Riviera in a few weeks, and the 10th hole is the one everyone throws out there. Also the 17th hole at TPC Scottsdale out there. I mean, the pivotal 17th hole. First Kepka chips in for Eagle on 17. Xander Snipehooks, speed in the water. Xander Snipehooks, it makes bogey and loses by a stroke. So you can say, I don't know what it was, I think it was around 320 yards. You can say all you want about distance and, and how guys are overpowering the game. One guy may have overpowered it, but the other guy didn't. And so I just think there is something to Webb Simpson. Again, I don't want to shoehorn myself in an argument here that I'm on the players or the manufacturer's side, because I can certainly see where the traditionals are coming from. Like, I'd love to go back to Marion for a U.S. Open. I'm not quite sure we ever are, simply because the things they have to do to it to make it teethy and mean and hard and all the things the USGA probably would want to do kind of make it a little trick, tricked out and no one wants that. And so I, I would like to hear both sides of the argument. And I'm, I've listened to a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me when it comes to it. Give me reasons why bifurcation would be bad for the game. I'm not saying it is because I don't pretend to understand it. I just feel like here is an opportunity. And again, I point out that golf is at a crossroads right now. We have a lot of people that are interested in the game and golf is deciding to, to have these battles when they probably shouldn't be. To Roy's point, whatever the RNA and USGA paid for this study, Rory threw out a million dollars, I'm sure that's not correct, but whatever money they paid for it, wouldn't that have been better in some sort of retention program? I just feel like there was a lot of other things that golf could be doing right now at this moment instead of worrying about how far Dustin Johnson hits the ball. By the way, Dustin Johnson won in Saudi Arabia. We're 30 uh, minutes into the podcast, and we're just now mentioning the world number one one on the European tour. I mean – Dustin's doing what Dustin does. He hasn't finished worse than 11 of his last nine starts. That's your best Dustin impersonation? 
I mean, I just, I played good, I guess. Just to, but just just to put a fine uh, point on this, and I really could care less about the distance a bit. I, I really could. But like most things in life, it is a multifaceted issue. It's not as simple as it's an equipment issue. It's not as simple as saying it's an agronomic issue. It's not as simple as saying it's a course design issue. All of those are contributing to what the governing bodies are saying is is a situation where now driving distance is detrimental to the game's future. The equipment appears to be the easiest to change, whether it's the golf ball or limiting the size of the club head, which is where I would start. Um, but that is a whole lot easier to change than, the, oh, let's plant some more trees and let's grow up the rough and let's make sure the courses that we play on the PGA Tour have more dog legs. I, 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 don't, I don't buy that argument at all as a standalone belief that that's how you curb driving distance. It's just... I think it's part of a bigger narrative, but yes, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, there's just more that goes into it. All right, you touched on DJ, and it was a fine win. He 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 swung it great, and he, he won for the second <laughs> time in three years in Saudi Arabia. I want to touch on Tony Finau and Xander Shoffley, because I'm sure you did not wake up in time in order to see exactly what happened uh, down the stretch in Saudi Arabia. So I will I will give you the cliff notes. And there was a moment late in that final round that epitomized why Dustin Johnson is the world number one and has a bigger gap over world number two than John Rahm has over world number 12 right now. There's that because Dustin Johnson was coming off a four-foot par miss on 16. He's down to one-shot lead, Rex. And so they're going to the 17th hole in Saudi Arabia. It is a 350-yard par four. If you've got a one-shot lead, you would think that, hey, maybe you're going to play a little bit more conservatively. It's just a short hole. Take an iron off the tee. Put yourself in position. Try not to make a mistake. And then the par five finishing hole, maybe you can uh, get a little extra cushion there. Instead, Dustin Johnson grabs driver, hammers a drive 330 yards into a little tiny sliver of fairway that leaves him just 30 yards. He ends up pitching it to a foot, makes the birdie, and heads to the last up by two shots. How does Tony Finau play that hole? Well, like Dustin Johnson made bogey on the previous hole, the par three. So he's now two shots behind DJ needs to make something happen. Needs to make something happen. Needs to press the issue. Needs to put the foot on the accelerator. What does he do? He doesn't hit driver like Dustin Johnson did. Nope. He, he pulled iron. He hit in the rough. He hit in the bunker and he made bogey given the chance to put pressure on Dustin Johnson. Even though he has as much firepower off the tee, he ended up going for an iron and it cost him. That epitomizes why DJ is the world's best because he has confidence not just in his swing and his game, but also confidence in his decision-making. Tony Finau isn't quite there yet. And the number of top five finishes that he, that he accumulates is extraordinary. It, it is. For a player who's in the top 15 in the world and does not win, it's, it's incredible. But there is some serious issues with Tony Finau between the years. And I think you're seeing that in some sense with, with Xander Shoffley, just to a smaller scale. That was, that was perfectly laid out there. I mean, you, you painted the picture and then you, you, you laid your, your, your attitude and your opinion in about Tony fee now. And the one thing you glossed over is the fact that he lost to the world. Number one, who was in full flight doing DJ things. Like I, I agree that, that Tony is getting to a place right now where he is DJ certainly wasn't playing his best on Sunday. I know, I know you weren't watching, but DJ was hanging on for dear life. It was a windy day. His lead was down to one shot. Look, man, I, I just think when you lose to the world number one, and, and you can, that you made a very fine point of, of going in, digging in, and finding somewhere. And some, my guess is this is the lead to your Monday column. 
since you've gone dug into this maybe, so deep. Maybe not the lead, maybe like the fourth item. All right, because this is a perfect Monday thing for the quarterbacks to do, right? Because you're going to sit there and you're going to say, look at him. He didn't get it done when he had to get it done. Never mind that he was going against the world number one on a very difficult golf course. And I don't care who's he going up against. He wasn't, he wasn't playing. Was very happy with the swing at that moment. He wasn't Give playing in the idea. same. He wasn't playing in the same group as him. Well, I don't know how why that would matter one way or the other. He knew situationally. He was he knew he situationally, was that was the wrong play. There was no doubt about it, and everyone knew it at the time. Well, no, I disagree with that because look, there's certain things that DJ probably does with the golf ball that Tony cannot. There's probably plenty, plenty of things that DJ does with the golf ball, specifically with his drivers that others can't. And he can't hit it on a rope. And he hits that little baby fade and it runs for miles and miles. And he could look into a little tiny 30 yard gap and think, yeah, that works. Whereas if you give a player like Tony Finau, I can only think of maybe one other player in the game that when he is swinging the ball well, I mean, when he's swinging the club well, is that indifferent to the consequences? And that's Rory McElroy. You put those two on a pedestal when it comes to driving the golf ball. And I don't think it's fair. Tony's very, very good at it, but I don't think it's very, very fair to go in that particular situation and say, Tony, didn't get it done. You got a problem. You got to fix that. There's something, there's an aggressive mindset, which is built on confidence and the style of game that you have. And there's a conservative mindset. And that's one that you would think that you have when you have so many close calls and you have one pro title. DJ can be aggressive because he has the resume. Oh, if he, if he blows this title in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia, what's it going to matter? You know, he, he gave it his best shot. He came with a very collected, a fat, appearance fee and he'll head home and probably play pretty well again when he tees it up at Revere. Tony Finau is pressing. He is pressing. And so when he's standing on the tee of the 71st hole, he's not, he's not thinking, Ooh, you know, I should, I should try and make a birdie here. He's thinking, how do I not screw up? DJ is standing on the tee. DJ stands on that tee and says, I need to make a birdie. Tony Finau stands on the tee and says, how do I not screw up here? All right. Now we're, now we're trying to read players' minds. We were doing the same thing last Monday. It was what's in Patrick Reed's heart. So we should just make this what's in, the, what's in a player's mind slash heart. We should make that a Monday morning thing just to make sure we're clear. And you mentioned Xander in the same breath. So I'm guessing you're about to make the same argument that Xander came up soft to on Sunday. Never mind that he went for the green on 17 and just pulled his tee shot a little bit. With a pull hook. That, that, right. was, that was, it was a very poor shot. And the fact that he's now 0 for 4 with at least a share of the 54-hole lead. He hasn't won in, in two years. Here's, here's a stat for you, Rex, since I, I know you love stats so much. Since the 2019 Tour Championship. Nothing makes for an exciting podcast more than stats. Please keep going. Follow along, please. No one on the PGA Tour has played better tee to green than Xander Shoffley. He is plus 168.5 strokes gained total since the 2019 Tour Championship. 168. Point five. The next closest is JT at 144.5. Xander Shoffley is more than 20 strokes better tee to green than anyone else on the PGA Tour, and yet he does not have a victory in that span. Sunday was as ideal of an opportunity as you could possibly get. He's playing alongside Jordan Spieth, who... Obviously, he's had a little bit of a crisis of confidence over the past three and a half years. He's playing with Scotty Scheffler, who has yet to win on the PGA Tour. You have a TPC Scottsdale course that you know you're going to have to make birdies on in order to, to win. So it's not like he needs to, to hang on for survival. He can just go out and get it. 
And for much of the day, he was he was two over par. He he stuffed it on the last inconsequentially, just to shoot even par on the day. Are you not at all alarmed about the way that that Shoffley plays when he's either in the lead or has a share of the lead? Uh, no, because we had this conversation about Tony. I believe it was two weeks ago. It's hard to win on the PGA Tour, so no, I'm not going to look at one he's specific. He's the fourth ranked player in the world. Again, I'm sure he would like to win more. He doesn't need to hear me tell him to win more, but it's very, very hard to win on the PGA Tour. It's not win is not a good stat. We've already been through this for a PGA Tour player because if that's what you're hanging your hat on, even if you're Brooks, you're going to have a very sad career. And for those of you, again, I pointed out earlier with the podcast, no one could see him. Not only was he doing math by stats, he was also reading. So nothing makes for a good podcast more than math and reading. Way to go. Way, way to just crush it. I'm sorry that I'm bringing facts to this podcast as opposed to you just spouting off with your burnt ribs on, on the weekend. You clearly weren't even paying attention to the golf. Wow. All right. Enough burnt ribs. Very good. What's on the grill this week? You have 30 seconds. Go. Uh, I haven't gone supermarket shopping yet. Uh, I would, I'd like, I'd like to try brisket now that I have full confidence in the gateway. Uh, and I know that's going to take about half the time that, that your overnight brisket is going to take. I think I think I got to fire up a brisket here at some point. I'm hoping this weekend. Another brisket, back to back briskets. All right, way to be creative. But that's exactly what oh, I, I had. A, I had a pork butt. I had a pork butt. Yeah. We'll find out next week. That'll do it for this Golf Central podcast presented by Callaway Golf. Next week, I'm back on the road in Los Angeles. We'll talk to you then.